You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Chris Jenkins, a programmer currently specializing in Kafka, but who previously spent years as a functional programming contractor, getting professional experience with languages like Haskell, Elm, Scala, Clojure, and PureScript. We start out contrasting the functional programming experience to the imperative one, and then transition into the topic of hiring, and more specifically, hiring functional programmers. Software Inscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. Speaking of hiring functional programmers, we're also hiring. So the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, hiring functional programmers. Okay, Chris, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. So I got to start by giving you some thanks because when we met at Goto Copenhagen last year, you gave me a new definition of pure function, which I really liked and which I've been using several times since. It's my favorite definition of pure function that I've ever heard, which is a pure function is a lookup table. If you can take the entire body of the function and conceptually replace it with a lookup table, assuming you had like infinite memory for a lookup table and could actually be bothered to (laughs) implement all potentially huge number of rows in that table, then it's a pure function. And if you couldn't do that, like if if it could not just be essentially replaced by a lookup table, then it's not a pure function. And I want to say thanks because I that's I love that definition. It's it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're very welcome. Yeah, it's kind of like it's related to caching and memoization, right? Yeah. So if you could run a function and every time you call it with the same argument, you just use what you've already returned, then right. it's pure. Yeah, it's completely cacheable. Yeah, there's there's nothing in there. Not only caching, but also, I guess, like pre-computation, where you could say, you know what, if I already know the answer, I don't even need to call this function because it's not going to do anything else other than give me the answer I already know. Yeah, a fact that was used quite heavily in the early days of Lisp, right? Because it's so easy to move a calculation to compile time just by making it a macro. Interesting. I didn't know that. That makes sense. If you want, back in the days of highly constrained machines, the idea of pre-computing things at compile time just by adding in a back prime sometimes was really appealing. That makes a lot of sense. I've had to do that for performance reasons, not with macros specifically, but with like doing, you know, pre-computation in order to basically like reduce loading screens, (laughs) just do a bunch of work ahead of time. And yeah, if you've got pure functions, you know that's safe to do. I'm reminded of this because I had heard there was a sort of debate in the React community about, well, maybe it's not a debate, but I'd heard people making the claim that, so React's render function originally was, it's like, you've got some inputs and then it just returns a virtual DOM structure and that's it. And I was like, cool, that's a pure function. Got it. Makes sense to me. And then at some point, they introduce these hooks things and now the render function when it runs it registers some like hooks and stuff like that i'm like okay so it's not a pure function anymore but i've been hearing people claim that it is technically still a pure function or something like yeah no it's not no (laughs) that doesn't have the properties like you can say it's you know almost a pure function except for the hooks part but like if you can't pre-compute the value and not call the thing and have everything work that it's it's just not a pure function anymore (laughs) yeah do you know i'm gonna i'm gonna risk saying something uh, controversial here So I think it's very hard to know what counts as a pure function if you mostly program in something like JavaScript. And the reason for that is, I'll justify that. So once you get beyond about 100 lines of code, it becomes very hard to be certain you're tracking side effects correctly. And you realize that if you switch into a language like Haskell, poster child, a language that doesn't let you get away with it. 
and it really rigorously trains you to keep track of your side effects. You know, the number one example of that I can think of is random number generation, because it's something that feels like it's not doing side effects because it's not doing any IO. It's not like <laughs> nominally it's it does. I guess it doesn't have to be doing any IO. It might be using the system clock or something. But I mean, that was a big surprise to me when I was first getting into pure functional programming was like, oh, random number generator. I can't just say like math out random and have it give me back a different number every time. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that that would not be a pure function anymore. If it, if it gave me a different answer every time I called it with the same arguments, <laughs> that's kind of definitionally not a pure function. I remember I was teaching someone Elm a few years back and I just shown them the basics of Elm and like, wow, this is so much easier than the whatever JavaScript framework I've been learning. And she was delighted with them. It's like, yeah, this is really cool. And then she said, how do you do a random number? Uh, I was, uh, oh, actually, that turns out to be an advanced topic. Can we save that for later? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Like, that's actually, I don't want to say pathological, but of all the things, like, I know when people talk about pure functional programming, they say like, oh, you're not doing any effects, but that's like what programming is. Otherwise, you're just heating up the CPU. And so, you know, it must be really hard to do effects or like get anything done and that's actually super easy like task and promise like if you see a bunch of code using tasks or using promises it's the same thing they're just chained together and like it's not harder than promises fundamentally i don't think but random number generation actually is significantly harder <laughs> than like, yeah. math not read. and when you think about it philosophically you kind of want it to be because what do you want to be hard to do random surprising behavior in your code <laughs> that's a good point when you put it that way right like we talk about it like like random number generation is is like harmless like oh it's just give me a different you know number but then when you think about it, it's like well if you're using that number to drive the behavior of your code what you're actually talking about is random behavior in your code which should be scary i suppose <laughs> now that you yeah. mentioned it. <laughs> it deterministic stuff should be the fundament we, that we build on and we should have randomness right at the top of the tower not at the bottom now, I will say I have had at least one use case where it actually turned out, at least for what I was doing, to be helpful to have randomness actually need to be like th sort of threaded through, which was I was building a test runner. This was Elm Tests version 2.0, which had built in support for property based tests. And of course, one of the like features you want is property based tests randomly generate inputs and then run the test a bunch of times with different randomly generated inputs. And then if it fails, tell you the output and here's what failed. But one of the things that's really important is you want it to be reproducible. Once you get a failure, you want it to tell you, here's a way that you can rerun this exact test with the exact same randomly generated set of inputs that caused this failure so that you can reproduce it. Otherwise, you'd have to just keep rerunning it and keep rerolling the dice. Be like, please, please show up again. Tell me if I fixed it or not. Or actually, what you'd actually do is say, oh, I f the test failed, but I reran it. It was fine. Right, right. Yeah. Let's pretend that error yeah. never happens. I, you know, it, I can't reproduce it anymore. I just, you know, it's funny that so if you want that feature where you can give it you know the same seed that it originally ran there's no option but to do the like threading the seed through you have to do have every single random number calculation be based on the previous one and if you do that then it's completely deterministic which is great and what was really nice was the fact that 
because that's just how the API works in like, you know, a pure functional language like Elm, I didn't have any trouble doing that threading through because I had complete confidence that in every case I was always basing it off the previous seed because you have to give it a seed in order to like do the threading in that way. As opposed to, I can imagine if I had been doing that same task in JavaScript and I'd started out with a convenient version that was using math.random or something like that, that later on I'd be really sweating like, did I catch every single case? Or is there like one case where I still use math.random or or some equivalent of that? And you probably build like a CI tool that grepped for math.random right. just to check. and Right, just, just make sure make sure <laughs> yeah. that I'm never accidentally doing it the wrong way. Because as soon as it, there's even one case where I'm doing it the wrong way, then it's, the tests aren't reproducible and the whole yeah, feature yeah. doesn't work. And then in, in a l- large scale programming, you get someone finds out that math.random gets grepped for and it fails the build. So they download a separate randomness package and use that <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah. Having said that, I will say over the years, I've used a couple of cheap linting tricks like that, like graph the code base for this thing and make sure you're not using it. And I have found those to be pretty useful. They're not as reliable as having like a framework that's sort of designed to have these guarantees built in, but it is better than nothing. Oh, yeah. We always make the best we can with the tools we have, right? As good programmers, we're using the best things on hand. But that doesn't mean we can't stop dreaming of better tools. Right. Yeah. So I guess randomness ultimately is is one of those things where like it is an advanced topic, but there are legitimately some advantages to the way that it's done in the pure functional style. Although admittedly, like most of the time, if I'm doing something random for most like user facing applications, it's not something where reproducibility is like an important feature. So I think in that case, I'm happy saying that's a downside of pure functional programming from an ergonomics perspective in the typical case. I think that's just true. Yes. Yeah. If you could separate out randomness from a class of random behaviors, then maybe you'd allow random numbers in. The thing is, the aim isn't to eliminate randomness. It's to eliminate random numbers. It's to eliminate randomness in general and make things more deterministic. And yes, maybe we've thrown out a tiny bit of baby with a lot of bath water. <laughs> sure. I mean, to be fair, like you can always have the like, you know, run it as an effect. Give me a random number system and it's like, okay, here you go. Here it is. And who knows how it comes up with that. And and then it's just like any other effect. But the weird part is you don't think of that as an effect usually, or at least I certainly didn't before I, I got into this style of programming. Yeah, yeah. It trains you to though, eventually. This is a thing I like about these styles of compilers. They train you to think in that way. Yeah, definitely. Like you you made the comment about in JavaScript, it's sort of harder to tell what is and isn't a pure function. And I definitely felt that where the way that I got into functional programming was I first read a couple of chapters of Learn You a Haskell and sort of understood what the rules were, or at least had some understanding of what the rules were. And then so I would sort of try to quote, follow the rules when I was programming JavaScript, or actually it was CoffeeScript at the time, because that was the period of time when CoffeeScript was really popular. Oh, you're making uh, yourself look old now. <laughs> yeah, there was there was like a five-year stretch there where I remember at the time, CoffeeScript was the 11th most popular language on GitHub, believe it or not. It was almost in the top 10, yeah. But I don't, I don't think it ever quite cracked the top 10, but it was, I mean, it was very popular. I had two jobs, different companies back to back where we, the whole, everybody used CoffeeScript. That was the whole, the whole language of the front end. Do you know, I never adopted it because um, really? I tried it and I was just disappointed. It didn't go far enough. It was more a syntactic preprocessor for JavaScript. Sure. Uh, yeah. And even then, I knew I wanted something a lot more. I hadn't found Elm or Haskell by that stage, but I wanted a revolution, baby. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think CoffeeScript was trying to be a revolution. I guess its tagline was, it's just JavaScript, right? And much like TypeScript's tagline is today. I've always thought it was kind of funny that you can you can separate out languages that compile to JavaScript into two categories. One category is basically JavaScript variants. And a common marker of that is the tagline is, quote, it's just JavaScript. So this would be like JavaScript, CoffeeScript, TypeScript. I think you could probably call LiveScript that. Dart, not quite. I think Dart is legitimately its own thing, even though it's like very obviously heavily JavaScript influenced. You could maybe call Dart a descendant of JavaScript. I think that might be reasonable, but it's not a JavaScript dialect, I don't think. And then like non-JavaScript dialects and like CoffeeScript, TypeScript, and of course, JavaScript itself have all been extremely popular to the point of dominance in the front end world. And outside of that, it's like Elm. And then a very sharp drop-off between the next thing. But of course, there's an enormous drop-off between any JavaScript dialect and Elm as like, you know, the second most popular compiled JavaScript thing, which is interesting. It's rare to have such a monoculture that's not, strictly speaking, enforced. Like you see that certainly in like Apple. There's Swift and Objective-C and then like, if anybody's building stuff that's not Swift or Objective-C, there's a huge gap between Swift slash Objective-C and like the next thing that's not either of those in terms of popularity i think some of that is the learning curve right you're more likely to adopt a language that's basically like the language you know but a bit better because the investment is so much lower i think that's part of it but i think there's also an element of oh do you mean in the apple ecosystem or the javascript ecosystem i mean generally like in both cases you're more likely to say well i can try typescript because it's a very low cost of investment i see I think that's part of it. Definitely in the case of like the JavaScript ecosystem, I think that's that's a big part of it. I guess I don't know the Apple ecosystem as well, like nearly as well. So I can't comment too much on that. But I definitely have the perception that in part, there's an element of social proof. And I think social proof is a big deal when it comes to programming language adoption. And so when everyone's doing this one thing, it takes a lot of inertia to overcome that, or a lot of energy to overcome that inertia, I guess, and get people to try to do anything different. You know, this is one reason why I'm a little bit disappointed with Apple and Google, because they uniquely have the the ability to influence that mindset. Google releases a new language, Apple releases a new language, and for different reasons, people will, in their droves, go and try it out. And it doesn't matter that it's different, it just matters that these headline companies have said it's worth trying. Right. It, it comes baked in with a certain level of social proof. Although, to be fair, I have seen that in several cases sort of not be enough on its own. I think two examples of this would be Dart coming out of Google. Like that was around for a very long time with all the social proof of Google. And it was used basically not at all until Flutter came out. And then that was actually a compelling enough use case or a compelling enough pitch that people tried it. But that was almost a decade, I think, <laughs> after it had been out under the Google you know, moniker. So definitely not sufficient by itself. Another example would be, I guess it's called Rescript now, but it was originally called Reason ML when it came out. And that was literally the creator of React, very strong you know, pedigree there. And then the repo was github.com slash Facebook slash reason. So very strong social proof there as well, but never really got anywhere near the popularity of React or even of Elm for that matter. So it definitely is an ingredient, but it's not everything. Yeah, but counterpoint, right? My go-to case for this is Apple making everyone learns 
Objective C. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wanted to learn that language, but they had sufficient motivation from the App Store to learn this weird old variant of C. Yeah. And I always thought, because that motivation was still there, that Apple could have been more ambitious with Swift. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the case of Swift, and again, I'm not plugged into this ecosystem, but this is kind of my perception, is that a big part of the story of Swift was trying to do as much modern stuff as possible and build on research that's happened in the last couple of decades and things we've learned about programming and ergonomics best practices and all that, while simultaneously having a good story around integrating with existing Objective-C code bases, which I think if you want that and you want to give people a viable path to transition, that's a pretty big design constraint. Yeah, and it's a very, I'm not sure it's a, ever been a solved one, that kind of constraint. I mean, it's a great point. I mean, I look at a lot of languages, like speaking of ways to categorize programming languages, another way you could do it is what's the language's story for interop with an existing language? And generally speaking, this breaks down again into sort of two groups. One is seamless interop with some sort of host language. And the other is firewalled access, where it's just like you have some very low level way to access something very below the, the normal level of abstraction. And that's it. So some examples of this would be like in ClojureScript and, and in Clojure, you can just call JavaScript or Java, depending on whether it's ClojureScript or Clojure, just right in line, just like it's a normal Clojure thing, except secretly it's implemented in Java or JavaScript under the hood, just extremely seamless. In contrast, you have something like Elm where it's like, yeah, you can do interop with JavaScript, but the JavaScript world and the Elm world are totally separate. And then I guess you do have some languages where it's maybe not totally seamless, but you do have like uh, Erlang, for example. You can do, I want to call out to a C function here, but at that point, it's it's not like the closure experience where you're just like, oh yeah, just call this function. And who knows whether it's implemented in Java or closure. It's more like, okay, there's some, some sort of setup work you have to do to get this C function into your Erlang code base. Yeah, yeah. I think my favorite example of interop, the one I've been most happy with is probably PureScript, hmm. where you can basically write JavaScript in an external file, and then it's up to you to write the correct type signature in PureScript land. And getting that right with getting the side effects tracking right is entirely on you. But once you've made that contract, it behaves almost exactly like PureScript code. Okay, so that sounds pretty similar to the closure style, where it's like you can you can call this function, you have to declare it first, but then yeah, gotcha, yeah. With a side effect tracking type system, it just the usability gets that much better, I find, because you can say, I'm writing loads of pure code, but now I need to interact with some JavaScript, and that ain't pure, and there's no way around it, but at least now I can track it, and so to a degree, I'd almost rather write JavaScript through PureScript. Yeah. And, you know, going back to uh, CoffeeScript and TypeScript, of course, the interop story there is is buttery smooth. It's like, oh, yeah, just just call them there. <laughs> yeah, it's almost a push to call it interop, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it even interop? And it's when they're compiling down to the same language and have the same level of abstraction and the same semantics. One thing I will say I, I did really like about CoffeeScript in the early days, like certainly I, I agree with you that like it didn't go as far as I would have liked which is sort of how I ended up on Elm. But I will say I really did appreciate an aspect of CoffeeScript that never really made it into JavaScript, like ES 2015 or anything like that, which is everything's an expression. Oh, did it? Yeah. You can say like X equals if and just write an if expression. If I remember, I don't think 
ever you needed to have a return statement in your functions. I think you could just say like the last expression in the function is, you know, just like, like you would have in Elm. I really like that. And a lot of the syntax choices actually uh, were sort of familiar to me in like a ML family of languages type of thing with like spaces for calling functions and things like that. There was a lot of stuff that I, I liked about CoffeeScript ergonomics that didn't end up making it into JavaScript. Like I know the popular narrative is that actually the, well, the popular narrative has always felt kind of strange to me, which was that I said this at the time and I don't think anyone, I mean, maybe people just agreed with me or like other people were like, eh, whatever, maybe this is or isn't true, but we don't care. But there was this narrative when CoffeeScript was popular that yes, the ergonomics are better in a lot of ways, but it's not real JavaScript. It's not like ES approved. It's not, you know, a standards thing. It's this own, it's just this one guy who works at the New York Times, Jeremy Ashkenas, and I don't know, is this... And there was all this hand-wringing about, like, it feels weird to not do the, like, official thing. And then the official thing, namely JavaScript, started adopting some of CoffeeScript's, like, banner features. Most notably was the arrow functions, like rocket functions, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and destructuring, was that another big one that CoffeeScript had? Certainly that's one that CoffeeScript had, yeah, and, and JavaScript adopted that. Also, like, improved scoping rules, so... VAR used to have, well, I guess still does, pretty weird scoping rules. Now, to be fair, CoffeeScript has, had its own weird scoping rules. Anyway, so there were a number of things that CoffeeScript had that were popular that JavaScript subsequently adopted. And the narrative went, well, this is great because now we can get these new things, but we don't need a build step anymore. We don't need to transpile our code you know, from a different language into .js files. Of course, what is left out of that is that at the time, the way that people were getting access to these new features, because of course, browsers come out with them, but this was around a time when you were still supporting Internet Explorer 9, maybe even Internet Explorer 8. So of course, what everybody did was they would run a build step that would spit out, it would take your new like ES6 or ES2015, I don't think it was called ES2015 yet. That's right, because Babel, the Babel transpiler was originally called 6 to 5, the number 6, T-O, the number 5. That was the original name of the project. And its whole job was to transpile ES6 to ES5. And they later renamed it Babel and, and kind of expanded the scope and yada yada. But uh, yeah, you can look, look that up. That's, that's the, that was the original name. And so what people were doing was they were saying, well, we've already got this compilation step where we're compiling our coffee script to JS. So why don't we just instead have a, cop, a, a compilation step that goes from future JavaScript to current JavaScript? And then the reason this is better is that someday we won't need this anymore when browsers have adopted everything. And what I would always say to that was, okay, yeah, but that's never going to change. You're never going to be like, oh, we're actually completely satisfied with the exact current set of features. We don't want to transpile in future features. No, no, no. That's not good. Like, I was like, build steps are here to stay. This is never going to go away, which means that actually there's not a big argument for using you know, ES6 over CoffeeScript. Now, if you like ES6 as a language better than CoffeeScript as a language, that's totally reasonable. But I always thought the argument that like, oh, well, this is the official thing, which means that we someday won't need a build step anymore. It was just totally bogus. It just never made sense to me. Yeah. Do you know, I think a similar story played out in the world of the JVM, because you've got, in a way, see if I can make this parallel, right? You've got Java in, I want to say around, let's say 2014-ish, and Scala comes along and it's like Java, but all these extra great features oh, sure. that have come from the functional programming world. And there was huge adoption of Scala. Yes. And then, for a moment, it seemed like Scala was going to take over the world. 
But then the tables kind of turned because two things happened. One is that Java started catching up with those features, started getting things like stream processing and mutable values and mutable Lambdas. records. Lambdas, yeah, another big one. Meanwhile, because they'd announced Scala 3, Dotty, right? Suddenly it was like there is not really going to be any more development on Scala for the near future. Mm-hmm. So you've got this situation where the argument for going for this new language, which compiles slightly differently, is being eroded, and they aren't keeping ahead. They're not doing that thing you said where you're always going to want the next latest feature from them. Right. They've kind of stuck <laughs> in the mud. And now now the argument for picking Scala over Java is very, very narrow indeed. That's an interesting perspective. Also, I mean, I was a professional Scala developer for like four months total. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm not speaking from deep experience here. Although, I mean, we did use it in a very functional style. But yeah, I mean, I will say that if you're going to sort of have the pitch of like seamless interop, and this is going to be very easy to onboard to and very easy to integrate into your existing code base and so on, part of what comes with that is necessarily some degree of coupling to the semantics of that language which can be a two-way street in the sense that if what you're doing is sort of necessarily an incremental improvement over that language because you have this design constraint of like you have to use the same kind of fundamental primitive structure that that language has and the same kind of abstractions and whatnot yeah you can add your own stuff but they can potentially add that because guess what they've got that same design constraint (laughs) you can't wipe the slate clean and say we're going to start from scratch and do something that's not really possible in that language because of its design constraints which means you're less differentiated over the long term yeah Yeah, so we end up with the fundamental question we're scrabbling at here is, should you go for an incremental improvement on a language that's known really well, or should you go for the Big Bang and try and really change things up? Yeah, and I guess different people have different preferences around that. Like myself, I'm clearly, I think at this point in my career, I could say I'm a go for the clean slate. I want to, I want the big improvement, even if that means I don't get the smooth interop. But I, I know plenty of people who are the exact opposite. I also would note that I think there are some languages that I would say have done a pretty good job of making the interop experience feel smooth and yet making it so that things are sufficiently different that it's not really plausible for the sort of host language to incrementally add them. So I think PureScript and Clojure would be two very good examples of that, where if you wanted JavaScript to adopt some of PureScript's sort of banner features, well, one of them is just the entire ecosystem being pure functions. Good luck with that in JavaScript, right? I mean, (laughs) like that would require changing so many things in a way that's just never going to happen because it would break all sorts of backwards compatibility. I would say that's actually fundamentally impossible because the core libraries just can't be done that way. Yeah. And if you take JavaScript and replace all the core libraries and all their behaviors, is it really still JavaScript? Right. Yeah. At that point, it's not. Well, and and especially because of the ecosystem. I mean, you've got this enormous, a million plus packages in NPM. They're not using that hypothetical new standard library where it's all pure functions. <laughs> They're using the old stuff. And similarly, in something like Clojure, you have everything's done with macros. You've got a lot of immutable data structures in use. And again, like, are you going to replace the entire Java standard library with persistent data structures? Probably not. I mean, and and at the point where you did, at that point, you wouldn't really be incrementally moving away from Java. You'd be more like, well, let's say that Java is Clojure now, and let's try to find a way to make that work with the existing ecosystem somehow. Yeah, yeah. I think you hit on one of my reasons why I'd have to go for a major revolution. 
if I can avoid it, I don't really want to program in languages anymore that don't have immutable data structures right at their heart. That is a fundamental language feature I want these days. So why is that? The idea that data itself is not a fixed thing. It's data plus it encapsulates the behavior of anyone else who can access that data structure. If I have an array with one, two, three in, well, I don't have an array with one, two, three in because I've also got this little corner of your behavior because you've got a reference to it, so you might change it. An array with three simple numbers in is now an array with three numbers plus the behavior of third parties, which is insane. It's insane. <laughs> data should just be data. I should be able to rely on data staying still. Yeah, now I will say that Rust has a very interesting take on this, where they have a type-level distinction between I'm passing this as a mutable reference or an immutable reference. So you can tell whether or not, you know, when a function's receiving it, it's it's allowed to mutate it or not. I had a little bit of an epiphany when I was somewhat early on at my in my time with Rust, which is that in Rust, the ability to accept a mutable reference, so not an immutable reference, where you can actually modify the thing, is kind of equivalent to passing in the value and then returning a value of the same type. So like if I'm passing into Rust like a, a hash map of things, I could say here's a mutable reference to that hash map, so feel free to insert things into it. Or I could say here's an owned reference is the Rust term, or sorry, an owned value, not a reference at all. And then also it's going to return a new hash map, which is a type signature that feels very functional to me. It's like it accepts a hash map, it returns a new hash map. But the trick being in Rust, whenever you accept an owned value, you're allowed to mutate it because the whole thing about an owned value is that it means that once you've passed that hash map in there, the caller who gave that hash map to the function can never reference that thing again. It's just like if you try to the borrow checker will give you an error. So because of that, it's like, well, feel free to mutate it because nobody else is going to reference it ever again. They won't know that it was mutated because they can't see it anymore. <laughs> and so those two types being equivalent in Rust made me kind of realize like, oh, this is an interesting sort of, I don't know, duality is the right word, but it's like the fact that in Rust, like the concept of a mutable reference is basically just a little bit of a syntactic convenience almost to like passing in the old value that's an immutable, theoretically immutable owned value and then returning a new one, again, the functional style. These are kind of equivalent. But to your point, this is something that I would prefer not to think about. The idea of, am I giving this thing a mutable reference? I can tell that when I look at the type of a function, but when a caller is passing the value in, I can't see that. All I can see is like at the call site, I'm giving you this thing. And I'm like, well, is it possibly mutating it? I have to go check the type of the function. I would personally prefer, like my life is simpler when I have this language-wide invariant of like, you're only ever just passing values to things and I know they're not being mutated. So if the thing is changing, it's getting a new name. I really like that. The one thing that makes them not quite equivalent is it's the fact that when I pass that thing to you, I'm promising to give up all knowledge of it. And that comes into play when you're dealing with garbage collection, right? Or trying to eliminate garbage collection entirely. As is the case in Rust, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, that's, that is a reason that Rust has a lot of things going for it. But ergonomically, that's speaking of rude surprises, like, you know, random number generation in functional languages was sort of a, you know, a rude surprise for me. The first time I had a Rust program where I was accepting something, I didn't really understand the difference between owned values and references at the time. But I was like, okay, this thing takes a hash map. And I'm trying to return a data structure where that hash map that I received as an argument appears twice. 
what's wrong with that? Why won't you let me do that? And I mean, now I understand why, but, but at the time I was just very annoyed that I was like, this is this basic technique that I've used all the time in my 20 years of programming. Why can I, why is the compiler saying you can't return two instances of this thing in the same data structure? It's so basic. Yeah. They're both examples of where in order to use the language, it's like, if you go from Java to Python, you kind of just have to learn new syntax. That's an oversimplification, but it's close to true, right? Whereas if you want to go from Java to Elm, it's like, hold on, stop. We have to talk about some theory first. The rules are different. Yeah, the rules are different here. If you want to jump from Python to Rust, stop a second. I've got to give you a new mental model before this is going to work. Right. And interestingly, in both of those cases where you're going from like a Python to an Elm or Python to a Rust... What's different about the rules that makes it challenging to learn as a beginner coming from a more traditional mainstream language is things that are missing. It's like things that are intentionally omitted. Like in Rust, the the thing that I was running into was like, I can't do this. It's something I'm used to being able to do and I can't do it. Or like in Elm, I'm used to being able to write a for loop. And it's like, there is no for loop. It's like, okay, well, what do do I do instead? In both cases, that's the question. What do I do instead? (laughs) My usual toolbox, there's there's a tool I'm used to being here and it's not there anymore. And in both cases, there's a very good reason it's not there. There There's some amazing benefits to having that particular tool not be in the toolbox, but it is a startling experience to discover that it's not there when you're used to it being there. Yeah, and you have to be ready to slow down and be a bit patient because otherwise you just get frustrated. It's like, of course, there should be a full loop. Why, do I, why can't I do this right now the way I'm used to? Because it's just a basic thing. And I think a lot of people give up quite early because they're a bit too used to being experts. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I've often said that my experience teaching Elm to beginners is there's sort of a weird sweet spot where if you're brand new to programming, it's pretty challenging because you don't know any programming yet. I don't have any firsthand experience teaching specifically Elm to people who are brand new to programming. So that's hearsay. I've heard other people talk about it. You have the usual challenges of like, here's what if means, you know. But if you're already an expert in JavaScript and you're like super experienced with it and you're really comfortable like React or something like that, I think that's actually harder than if you're somewhat of like an intermediate JavaScript programmer where you sort of like know your way around the block, but you're not, you don't have this like instantaneous muscle memory for React or Vue or, or any, anything like that because you don't have as much to unlearn. You don't have these you know, techniques where you're like, oh, well, how do I do the equivalent of this in Elm? And it's like, well, there is no equivalent to that. Actually, let's, let's talk about the, take a step back and say, what's, what's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the user experience you're trying to create? I can tell you the technique for doing that in Elm, but it's not just a one-to-one correspondence with the technique you're used to using in the React world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think for me, I reached a point in my career where I felt like I was a Java programmer, right? I was a Java programmer for about 10 years. And I felt that, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, I can write anything I want to in Java. You name it, I can do it. But I just don't have the enthusiasm to do it anymore. The weight of Java had dragged me down. And so I was absolutely ripe, despite being an expert, absolutely ripe for a new experience where just tell me I'll get to a place where things aren't as heavy and I'll follow you there. Yeah, so you were actually looking for something that felt significantly different. Yeah, like I was, that was, sick a, that was of my existing point. mental model. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I have heard a lot of people say, and I would certainly count myself in this group, that like something along the lines of the first time I used a pure functional programming language, it really like rekindled my love of programming. 
And in some cases, people will say, like, I was about ready to quit programming until I used Haskell or Elm or PureScript or something like that, or Clojure, for that matter, not pure functional, but but a lot of people I, I've heard say the same thing. And then they're just like, and now I'm excited about programming again, and this is the only type of programming I want to do for the rest of my career. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I have good news for you. There aren't that many jobs, but there are even fewer people trying to fill them. (laughs) That was my experience, at least. I thought this is so interesting. I don't care that it's career suicide. (laughs) Well, but I I will say, like, I I know quite a few people who have gotten into those those languages and have successfully continued to, you know, use them across multiple jobs and counting. This is the thing I found. Like, I thought it was career suicide, but I was never out of work again because the recruiters were desperately trying to find people to fill these holes. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely have noticed that there's a pretty significant difference for companies that are hiring who do and don't require experience specifically with functional programming. Like, we've always hired and said, all we require is that you're open to it. This is what we do. We use Element Haskell and stuff like that. And you got to be willing to do it. But we don't require that you have an existing experience. We assume that you'll be able to pick that up on the job. And we've been doing that since 2015. So at this point, I feel like if that were a problem, we would have noticed it by now. But I know a lot of companies have a different hiring philosophy. And they'll say, like, must have X years of professional experience using Elm. And that's not, not common. Not so much there, no. <laughs> <laughs> and if I were to give them advice, I would say, drop that requirement, see what happens. But in the meantime, I'm just happy to take their candidates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think one of the biggest dividing lines in hiring is how do you find people? Because there are some companies, there are plenty of companies where when they want a new programmer, they go to their three or four favorite recruiting agencies and they say, can you get me a new PHP programmer? And an hour later, there are 100 CVs on their desk. And if that's that's the way you hire, then you have to hire for mainstream languages. Because that don't work for the fringier languages. Which is not to say you can't hire for the fringier languages. You can, and you can do it faster and cheaper than going via recruiters. But you've just got to take a different path. Yeah, and I think one of the big differences is that you know, you kind of alluded to this mismatch where like, there's more people who want to do functional programming at work than there are companies hiring for you get to do functional programming at work all day types of roles. And because of that mismatch, you use a different strategy. I mean, the strategy is that you got to let the candidates know that you're one of the few shops that's actually hiring for that. Our recruiting efforts are mainly about just getting the word out and making sure that people know that like, you know, that's why Doritic's sponsoring this podcast is so that I can say, hey, we're hiring and we do functional programming, right? Just <laughs> That was the just... most subtle plug I've ever heard in the podcast. Well done, <laughs> well, sir. Well, it's, it's, it's in the intro. I always say it every okay. episode. So it's not a, <laughs> there's no subtlety here at all. But the point is that people don't just automatically know that, right? You have to actually get your name out there so that when someone's like, I really like Haskell, I really like Elm, I really like whatever, I want to use that at work in my next job. I'm tired of Java or TypeScript or whatever the case may be, I want to try actually getting to do this all day. Who do they think of? And if your company is hiring and you have openings for these jobs and people are not thinking of you when they're in that spot, how are they going to know to apply? They have to know that you're one of those companies. And maybe if you're lucky, they'll go to a recruiter and they'll say, I want you to find me a functional programming job. And maybe that recruiter is the recruiter that you've hired or something like that. And the connection gets made. But when you're dealing with smaller numbers of people, because it's not the majority of programmers in the world who want these jobs. But it is, I I will say, one thing that is quite nice about this hiring thing compared to like hiring I've done at um, past companies 
there is some automatic filter where you don't get 100 resumes, you know, right off the bat, like you would for that hypothetical PHP job. But the average quality level of the resume is much higher. And when I say resume, what I really mean is just like, person you interview you know like i'm not saying like the resume specifically but just like i've done interviewing at multiple different companies and the average candidate that we get for people who are like interested in functional programming is just more likely to be a good qualified candidate and i've heard that from other companies too it's like you 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 don't tend to get as many i know there's like a pretty common trope of like someone who is basically just like blasting their resume out to like every single job they can and i understand like if you're trying to break into the industry that's probably a good tactic, honestly. I mean, I've heard that's advice that's given and it makes sense. But if you're trying to hire somebody that's got a specific skill set or something, you can kind of filter those out at the, at the resume stage. But if you're not trying to hire somebody with a specific skill set, like we've also had good success hiring people who are straight out of boot camps and they only know Python and they only learned it at this boot camp. They have no professional experience. That's also worked out for us too. The idea of like people picking stuff up on the job is underrated <laughs> in my experience. Yeah, people can usually, I think one thing I would hire for, it was entirely down to me, is I'd hire for, I'd want to hire people that had already got the base concepts in their head. I would... Of uh, functional programming? Yeah, so I'd like, I would almost rather hire someone with two years of hobby experience on Haskell, if I'm hiring for a functional programming job, two years of hobby experience with Haskell than two years of in the mines Java experience. Interesting. Because I think, yes, you can cross-train either way, but if you've got the mental concepts in your head, then that training goes a lot faster. I've always found that when you're teaching people functional programming, the small ideas, like the syntax is a bit weird, is easy. The big ideas, like you cannot solve problems with objects anymore. You've got to think of a different way of dealing with code. That's a There's big no inheritance. There's yeah. Yeah. There's no inheritance <laughs> right. and we don't need it. Come and join the cult of the other things we have instead. <laughs> but that takes a while. That takes a while. Yeah, I buy that. And I have seen different people take more or less time to make that adjustment. I will say though that I, I think I wouldn't go as far as to include in the hiring process like an expectation that people have done functional programming in their free time. But I do think you're onto something with the mindset thing, where I think If someone's coming in with a mindset of like, I'm intrigued by functional programming, I've heard of it somehow, and I want to try it out. I'm here to learn. I want to try this out. I want like I'm motivated to, you know, get into it. I think you're going to have a lot more success than if you're coming in from a mindset of maybe I guess the extreme opposite would be like skepticism or like extreme skepticism of saying like, I think functional programming is this fad, or it's like just a bunch of kooks who don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I want you to pay me, but we've always used JavaScript and it's been fine for us. Yeah, like if somebody's coming in with that mindset, I don't think they're likely to be successful with functional programming. And that is something that we don't explicitly interview for it, but hopefully by the end of the interview process, it would become clear if that was the attitude they were taking. But I mean, I guess it could happen. At the same time, I don't know why you would apply for a... There's got to be some self-selection process there, right? Well, that's why would you apply for an FP job? If you <laughs> can be one of those companies that's hiring for functional programming jobs and raise your hand and be visible then the right people will tend to self-select and track you down. And that's why hiring can be a lot easier for these kinds of languages. Because as long as you can get over the visibility issue, then some of the best people in the industry will say, have you got any jobs, please? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, like, I I always say, like, whenever people ask me, like, hey, you use Elm at work, you know, how do you hire anybody? My response immediately, 
I don't know how we hired anybody before. <laughs> yeah. It's before we were just like one company in a sea of React shops. There's just so many companies that are hiring for React. How do you possibly make yourself stand out? It's much easier to say, hey, we're just getting the word out that we are one of the few companies that's hiring for these jobs, as opposed to trying to say, we are one of the bazillions of shops using React and JavaScript or today React and TypeScript. Here's why you should apply to us and not one of these bazillion other companies. Yeah, yeah. And it so often just comes down to money and perks, which are great. I'm not turning them down, but it shouldn't be your primary reason for choosing job A over job B. Yeah. And I mean, like, there's also the question of turnover, right? If I join a company because I'm here primarily for the money and perks, it's pretty well known that if you want to make more money and get better perks, the smart thing to do is to stay for approximately 1.5 to 2 years and then leverage that into another company that has even higher money and perks. And from the employee's perspective, okay, if that's if that's how you want to maximize those things, that's probably the strategy you should adopt. From the company's perspective, it's not great when everybody's leaving your team after 18 to 24 months all the time. We have people stay here for like five, eight. I mean, I've been here for more than eight years. You know, it's great. Like from an organizational perspective, it's definitely advantageous to have people who want to be there for reasons other than just trying to leverage one job hop into another to keep ratcheting up the salary until you get to the Fortune 5 <laughs> tech giants and, and they pay the most. You get promoted all the way out of programming and then you're into management and that's a disaster. Yeah. As an aside, like Dan Liu has some interesting writing about this stuff and he speaks pretty frankly about here are the realities of like programmer salaries and there's, you know, like you can make a very, very enormous amount of money if you work for one of these extremely wealthy tech companies, much less if you work for not one of them. But I've always thought this is weird because I mean, I have friends that I grew up with who have jobs like delivering mail at the post office. I have friends who... These are people I've spent a huge number of hours with. I consider them my peers, and I make multiple whole numbers worth of dollars per year of what they do. And I don't think that's because I'm a better person or like I deserve that. It's just like, well, when we were growing up, they were into art and I was into computers. And one of those turns out to just the way things are set up, just pay way more. Yeah. My sister-in-law, she's a school teacher. And I don't want to say the multiple more I earn than her, but I know she works four or five times harder than I ever do. Oh, yeah, yeah. The amount of hours and also the effort per hour is just much higher. And then the pay is just much, much less. And so to me, the narrative of, hey, you could be making so much more money. I'm like, what are you talking about? I make so much more money than I need to make, like relative to people who work so much harder than I do. We're not even getting into like physical labor, right? Where like, I have one friend who got into, actually, he's like really into functional programming. He was an auto mechanic before. And he said, the reason I got into programming was because I saw that if you do this auto mechanic thing for long enough, I saw what it does to your body. You never recover from that after you have a career in that and like like physically. And I know what old age is going to be like for me if, if I continue down that career path. So I found something else that wasn't going to beat up my body so bad. And so instead, he's a programmer and he's hunched over his keyboard for eight hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it turns out there's worse things. But I guess my point is that to me, I feel so fortunate that I have the luxury of being able to say, you know what, I don't need to optimize for salary anymore. I make so very plenty of money that like, I can now say, you know what, I'm going to take a, a fine salary that I'm happy with, which compared to a lot of my friends is like a ridiculous number. And at the same time, I get to use technologies that make me happy. I have the luxury of optimizing for that. I will say at the other extreme end, I also have like 
friends who are lawyers who make multiple whole numbers of <laughs> times help what I make. There's always stuff all the way up the tree, right? Yeah. One of them was telling me, he's like, hey, man, I heard you're like, you know, a lot of Rust. Did you know that there are these crypto companies that are paying these obscene salaries to Rust programmers? I was like, I do know that. Fortunately, I'm already happy with the amount of money I'm making. I don't have to optimize for salary anymore. And he was like, huh, that's interesting. Because I mean, he's got like some enormously expensive house. And you know, like, he's like, I, I just like where I live, I always think there's always, I could always be using more money. And from my perspective, I'm like, well, or, or we could just kind of like live within our means and just enjoy these general tech salaries that we have. Yeah, yeah. I think if you can't live within a good tech salary, then something fundamental is wrong that would be wrong no matter what job you were doing. I mean, that's one perspective. I certainly understand other people have other perspectives. I also know that some people, the reason that they are seeking higher and higher salaries is because they're supporting multiple people, not just themselves and their immediate family, but sometimes their extended family or, you know, others totally respect that. You know, that's, that's a totally different thing. And I also don't say, I'm not saying I begrudge anyone wanting to do the, I want to optimize for salary thing. That's their choice. But I've never felt any guilt about saying, you know what I want to optimize for is like enjoying my job <laughs> and, and doing the, the type of programming that makes me happy. I'm just fortunate to be in this industry at all, I think. And the fact that I'm able to do the type of programming that really makes me happy at the same time is just like, wow, even more amazing. So I'm happy to optimize. It's a that. nice career, even if you get into it for the money initially. Sure. Yeah. I also know at least one person who did get into it for the money and then was very unhappy with it and got out of it. And that's fine too. If I give too many details, some people will know who he is, but like he basically got into, I'll say training athletes instead. Uh, and he now does extremely well at that and is kind of famous for it. But is he um, happy that was then? his passion. And oh, very happy. I mean, compared to what what he was doing before. Yeah, absolutely. All of these things are viable points. And, and I guess like bringing it kind of back to hiring, I think it's fine to just say like, hey, this is what our company does. We're not paying Apple, Google, Amazon, you know, Facebook salaries. Sorry, meta salaries. But you know what? We're a nice group of people and we're using functional programming and <laughs> you can come do it for real and we're hiring. And if that sounds appealing to you, come check us out. And that's worked out really well for us. And I suspect that would also work out well for a lot more companies if they were more open to hiring people who didn't already have, you know, the years of professional experience on their resume. Yeah, yeah. Because they might well have other very re relevant experience that wasn't quite that. I'll tell you a strange thing that I found, because I was a contractor for about 10 years in the functional programming space. And the one other thing I found that we haven't talked about yet was, as a contractor, you naturally jump companies a lot more often. Oh, sure. And yeah. comes with the territory. One yeah. thing that comes with the territory in functional programming, because people are kind of self-selecting, is I got to work with so, so many great people I'd heard of in the community, because they're all kind of focused on a few companies, and they are self-selecting into, I just really want to do this kind of programming right now. And I got to work with them. I, you know, I got to work with some big names from the Elm world and Haskell world, PureScript world. It was good times because it's a smaller, tight, more tightly knit community of really enthusiastic people. Now, out of curiosity, there's always this uh, this saying of like, you know, never meet your heroes because you'll, <laughs> you'll maybe be disappointed. Uh, I don't know, did that ever happen where you met somebody who was like kind of a big name and then you were like, oh, I thought this person was amazing, but actually they're just like everybody else. I don't think it's ever happened to me, actually. Who? who huh. Yeah. Every, so everybody lived up to the hype? Yeah, wow. <laughs> every, everybody. I mean, some people are more or less nerdy than you expect, but I'm very used to that in our industry. But yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone that's disappointed me. Cool. Yeah. 
maybe there's one person I can think of who is famously acerbic on Twitter. And in person, she's a lot nicer. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. I definitely had similar experiences like that, where someone's like very spicy on social media, and then in person, they're just casual chat. You'd never guess if you'd never looked at any of their social media that they, they'd be like that. <laughs> no, it's been one of the delights of, especially of recent years of my industry, just all the great people I've got to work with. That's awesome. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I think there are probably two or three programming languages we haven't mentioned left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Other than that, we've covered the entire history of programming, I think. <laughs> That's yeah, everything, yeah. About. What else is interesting me? In the whole programming model, I spent all these years thinking about functional programming and mutable data structures with side effect free processing on top. And that's why my career has ended up being where it is now. Because in all that time, I never found a good way to take the idea to a database, to persistence. Because you've got this model, which largely ends up being a series of immutable values that you transform in interesting ways. And there aren't many places to persist that and have it for large-scale data systems. That's how I ended up working for a company that does Kafka, because it's a very similar idea. You could almost say Kafka is a potentially infinite list of immutable values and then some processing on top. Sounds but familiar. <laughs> yeah, but, but then you've got the chance to do this with persistence to terabyte, petabyte scales, which you can't do in a single machine. Sure. So it, for me, it felt like the missing piece of the building systems puzzle in functional programming. Gotcha. Now, I know some people would say that the answer to that is datomic, which I actually don't have any firsthand experience with either of them. So I, I can't really say. <laughs> uh, I, can, I actually have. I worked on one contract with datomic once. I really liked the query language, but my feeling at the time, can I give this a year for fairness? I think this is going to be about 2016, 2017. Okay. I think. Really like the query language. That works really well. The system seemed to work well. It was not mature enough to go into production there were a lot of ergonomic issues. Gotcha. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's continued to be developed since then, so I have no idea what its current state is, but yeah. My opinion is out of date, but that was my opinion the one time I was a professional Datomic developer. Yeah, okay. I mean, six years ago, that's eh, probably some stuff has changed. <laughs> I would hope so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay, good points all around. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I enjoyed our discussion and look forward to chatting another time. Yeah, always a pleasure to talk to you, and hopefully we'll bump into each other at another conference somewhere, right? Yes, looking forward to that. Yes. All right, see you around. See ya. See ya.